The thing I have the most anxiety about in relation to this film is actually talking about my own story. I don't have any anxiety about creating the film. I don't have any anxieties about, you know, how to get it done, partly because <laughs> I have my husband who's doing the editing. Hi, dear all you boys and girls out there in podcast land. Welcome to Radio Film School, a radio documentary anthology series about filmmaking, cinema, and the pursuit of passion. Every week, we bring you personal, passionate, and sometimes provocative stories from filmmakers and artists all over the globe. Stories that would help you mature as an artist and find more fulfillment in your craft and career. Today, we have the first installment of Making a Documentary. A new miniseries we're running here on the podcast about the making of my first feature-length documentary. I'm actually the co-producer, DP, and editor of the film. That voice you heard at the top of the show was the documentary's director, my lovely wife, Tazra. I'm calling this episode The Reluctant Filmmaker, for reasons that will come into light as you hear Tazra's heartfelt interview. But before we get started, I just wanted to remind you to be sure to subscribe to the show in iTunes. That goes a long way in helping us get found by other people who want to hear these incredible stories of filmmakers and artists. In addition to iTunes, you can get the show on iHeartRadio, Spotify, or use our RSS feed to subscribe in whatever podcatcher you like. Also, please leave a review in iTunes and let people know what you think. As is often the case, there is a bonus segment after the credits, which is a heartfelt and personal discussion by Tazra that provides more insight into why this film is so important to her. Now, without further ado, here's Making a Documentary Part 1, The Reluctant Filmmaker. It was a cloudy, rather dark and grim winter day on the playground of Audubon Elementary School in Altadena, California. A group of us kids were playing near the apparatus in the jungle gym. That's when it went down. The schoolyard bully, let's call him Rufus, started picking on Caitlin Palm. I don't know how it all started, but he was getting all up in her face and actually looked like the dude was going to hit her. I just knew I had to do something. Now, you have to understand that I was a pretty scrawny little guy. Picture that scene in Superman 2, you know, in the bar after Clark has lost all of his powers and he tries to stand up to that truck driver and he gets the kicked out of him. That's the territory I was venturing into. I walked over to where they were standing and I said, Hey Rufus, why don't you go pick on someone your own size? Actually, I'm pretty sure those were not my exact words, but I said something to draw his attention off Caitlin and onto me. And it worked. The dust and the ruin carry weight of the sins of your father and his kin since the world did begin. Like shark drawn to blood, Rufus turned his angry gaze towards me, for better or worse. What in the world possessed me to tempt the schoolyard bully into turning his focused rage from Caitlin onto me? Now, it's quite possible that part of it was childhood romanticism, as I did kind of have a crush on her. But, more importantly, 
I had a sense that it was just the right thing to do, you know? It didn't feel right to stand by and let this bully pick on a girl. Have you ever felt like that? Where you knew there was something that just seemed like it was the right thing to do, and despite how afraid or intimidated you might be, you knew you just had to do it. For many filmmakers, particularly documentary filmmakers, that's how they get drawn into the making of their films. The sense that there's a story that just has to be told. That doing the right thing means telling that story, especially if no one else seems to be telling it. That's the position that my brave wife is in. She's a creative through and through. She paints, writes, sketches, and shoots photography. So she's no stranger to the art. But she's not a filmmaker. At least, that's what she would tell you. I'm Ron Dawson, and this is Radio Film School's special miniseries, Making a Documentary. <laughs> no. Tazra Dawson. Tazra Dawson. And um, what is your relationship to the <laughs> interrogator? <laughs> to the question? Depends on what me. day and time you ask me. <laughs> so we're doing this movie. We're doing a movie? Invisible Illness. You mean a documentary? Documentary is a movie. And first of all, tell me, like, why did you want to do this documentary? I mean, like, what's your background? What's your background been? So I'm not a filmmaker. I don't see myself as a filmmaker. Well, I guess technically I am. I'm being told that I am now. I've never thought of myself as a filmmaker because I'm married to a filmmaker, so I see what goes into the entire process of filmmaking, and so I would never call myself that because... I'm not in every aspect of it, nor do I want to be in every aspect of it. However, what I have been told and I'm starting to realize is that there's a lot of different aspects that I am doing that someone could call me a filmmaker mm. around. Uh, so that's fine. I don't like names and labels and all of that anyway, so it doesn't really matter. What matters to me is that I want to tell a story, that there's a message that I have, and I'll use whatever medium is the best medium to use to get that story out. And so right now, the message is about invisible illness. Because of what I experienced and because of what I wanted at a really pivotal time in my own like health journey. So in October 2011, I was on a work retreat at a hotel and went out for a walk. And on my way back, I was walking in a crosswalk and a car was there and wanted to turn right on a red light. And so they were looking to the right. Actually, they were looking to the left. <laughs> and um, they, I guess that they saw an opening and they didn't see me. And they drove into me. So I fell over the front of the car and was thrown six feet in the air and landed somehow on my feet quite a ways away from the car that had hit me. 
Um, the only way I actually know what happened is because there were two witnesses and one of the witnesses screamed and thought that was pretty much the end for me as she saw me flying through the air and had to actually come get me out of the street because I was in complete shock. So from that incident, I have had a lot of health challenges that have come up because of the incident itself, but also because of the medical intervention that I had over the next two and a half years, traditional medical intervention uh, or lack of intervention. Um, Initially, the doctors that I was seeing were all saying that because I didn't appear to have any broken bones and because I was still walking, so they were looking at me externally and saying, you look fine, and that it's all soft tissue injury, and so take this pain pill, take this muscle relaxer, take this tranquilizer, and you will you know, wait for your body to heal. And so first it was, it'll take a couple weeks, and then I went back, oh, it'll take a month, and then I went back, and then it's going to take three months, and then I went back, and it was, it's going to take six months. And so at that point, I was saying, this can't be the rest of my life, because I was bedridden for a lot of the time. I had to quit my photography company, because I couldn't go out on photo shoots anymore. And so about nine months after I was initially hit, I found a new doctor who ran a bunch of tests. So CT scans, MRIs, x-rays, blood work, I mean, everything that you could do, the whole workup. And that was when a lot of the injuries were found that were not visible to the naked eye. So the doctor didn't see them initially and they didn't run the test that we have to find out if there was something else going on. And so, you know, one of the injuries I had was a torn quad tendon that I had been walking around on for nine months in pain, swollen. And my doctor kept saying, it's fine and there's nothing wrong. And so this just kind of kept going on. And, and the more I found out, uh, the worse it got. Uh, to the point where I found out that I had an aorta dissection because of the accident. And so in the midst of all that, probably about two years in, I was also dealing with traumatic brain injury, which, again, it took them 18 months to figure out because the physical injury, the physical pain that I had been enduring didn't even let me think about other other things. I wasn't thinking about anything other than the pain. So once I had started getting some relief from alternative uh, medicine and practices, then I started seeing how much my brain power, my ability to think, my ability to remember things was affected. And specifically, the one incident was um, I have a bachelor's degree in English and I have a master's degree in education. And I used to be a junior high teacher in public school and a trainer at Apple. So words are my business. Words are what I live in. And so I was talking to my son one day and he wanted to show me something he had built. And so I turned to look at what he had built and I said, wow, that's amazing. It's a thing that a king sits on. And I could not think of the word throne. And it was It was surprising and shocking and 
a little bit alarming and I started paying a little more attention to how my brain was working and whether it was working the way I knew it could and should and had been in the past. And so that along with some other things made me uh, a little bit concerned. And that was when I went in for a full psychological brain evaluation, you know, the six or eight hours a day that they run you through all of the tests to see what's going on. The reason that the, the TBI is relevant is because the TBI, traumatic brain injury. So the reason that that's relevant is because I had been such an avid reader. So obviously as a English major and an education person and a teacher, trainer, all of that, I, on a regular basis, have 50 to 100 library books checked out and I'm not exaggerating, and will be reading, you know, three, four, five at a time and taking that information and taking notes on them and then synthesizing it because it's usually around similar topics. So if I'm interested in nutrition at the time, I'm reading three, four, five different nutrition books and then triangulating the information and synthesizing it to, you know, see where things have patterns. Well, that's what I used to do. Uh, before the accident. And then what happened was when I, after the accident, when the pain had reduced enough that I wanted to start reading again, I would open a book and I would start reading the first paragraph and it literally would start swimming in front of me. The The words would be moving, the the page would be moving, I couldn't get my eyes to focus, and I would start feeling dizzy and nauseous almost immediately. So it was pretty devastating to have this, you know, number one pastime of mine to not be able to, to do that. And so normally the way I would find information and figure out what was going on with me would be to read about it. And so since I couldn't read the books, any books about the illnesses and the injuries that I was dealing with, I had to look for other ways. And so the other way, the only other way really to take in information was to watch something because I am not an auditory learner. So if you know anything about kinesthetic, auditory, visual learners, uh, we usually have a really strong one, our main one, which for me is visual. And then we have a you know moderate secondary one. And then you know the third is usually a weakness. So I'm strong visually, I am strong kinesthetically, and I am not an auditory learner. So That's why if you ever see me at a conference or listening to something or reading a book, I'm always taking notes or doodling or sketchnoting because that's how my brain processes the information. It's not just listening. So if I try to just listen to a podcast, like the one you're listening to, uh, the information will go in and will go out and I will retain very little of it. So that meant the only avenue left for me to learn about what was going on with me was through a visual medium like film. And there was nothing there. So nothing (laughs) that I could find. There were some things about health. There were things about nutrition. um, but, But I just, I couldn't find what I wanted. I couldn't find people who were struggling the way I was. I couldn't find people who were bedridden and talking about it and who were in chronic pain all the time and still trying to manage their life like a normal person. So another one of the illnesses that I, um, I don't even call it an illness, it's a condition, 
is PTSD, which I'm not even super comfortable saying I have. I'm not comfortable at all, actually, and I avoid saying it, and so I'm, I'm sure we'll have a conversation after this is over about whether or not you get to keep that because there, that's a whole nother can of worms I don't even want to bring up. But the reason it's relevant is because one film I found was through the library that you could check out online. I was able to watch it through the library, like it was a link, and it was about PTSD, and it was this tiny little, like, I don't know, 200 pixel by 300, 400 pixel film, and it was just, it was old, and it was small, and so here I was watching this little film in my room, bedridden, and within the first eight minutes, I was sobbing because I, they were describing exactly what was going on with me. They were describing how the isolation and the withdrawal and what I had done and how it is incredibly common for people suffering from PTSD to not tell anyone what they're going through. Or if they do, they they drastically minimize what it is that they're going through and don't really communicate what's going on. And it wasn't until then that I even realized that I hadn't even told people what was going on with me and how much I had been suffering. And so that was a serious turning point because I finally was willing to go back to the doctor and say, okay, yeah, I think you're right, which meant then I was willing to go to the psychiatrist to the you know the therapist to get EMDR therapy which is for reducing the symptoms of PTSD it was in the denial came the inability to heal because without accepting what it was I really had and was experiencing I couldn't get the help or the tools that I needed And that, to me, is an absolutely pivotal, important thing. And I have chills, which I always get when I know things are important and valuable and right. And it wasn't in that moment that I thought, oh, I need to make a film. It was two years later when I'd made so much progress, both physically and mentally, emotionally, that I said, people need to know that they're not alone. And not just people dealing with PTSD, people with invisible illness, people who are, who have previously been normal, functioning, productive members of society who are now sidelined and they are in their homes and struggling with their identity and with who they are and who they thought they were going to be and what they can do in a day. And it's incredibly isolating and you feel abandoned by life and the world and even the people around you because you can't explain in in words or it's just, it's just impossible. It feels impossible to explain what it's like 
to go through and to live and deal with an invisible illness. And some people are dealing with multiple ones, as I am. The thing I have the most anxiety about in relation to this film is actually talking about my own story. I don't have any anxiety about creating the film. I don't have any anxieties about, you know, how to get it done, partly because <laughs> I have my husband who's doing the editing. So, um, and, and is there to do the interviews when I can't, when I am having a rough day and I say, I'm, I know we have this scheduled, but I literally cannot get up out of bed. And so, you know, he can take over. So I know it will get done. I know it will be amazing. I know it will be impactful. I know that it will change the way people are able to see themselves. I know that it will change the way that people are able to communicate and the language they have around telling their story if they're dealing with invisible illness, around sharing about it if they are someone who is living with someone with an invisible illness, that they're a caretaker, and even the opening up the conversation between doctors and healers and alternative and traditional medicine and, and people navigating that system. I have no doubts about that. I, there are no fears about that. I don't have specific numbers of people that I'm trying to reach or, or even specific, you know, trying to make a certain amount of money off of it. Like, that is not the goal. For me, it's about starting and opening up the conversation in a way that it really needs to happen. So the only anxiety I have is about me participating in it, about me having to share my own story. And and have given serious consideration to not even including my own story and just include everybody else's. But it feels inauthentic and disingenuous to do that because I am asking other people who struggle with similar, if not the same things I do, to share their stories. And they have so bravely and courageously and, and have inspired me when I listen to them. So it... It doesn't feel okay to not include myself in that, but it, it creates an incredible amount of anxiety for me, in part because I am a more private person, in part because I fear the criticism and vitriol and judgment, especially around the victim blaming that happens in our culture. I don't, I don't want to be pegged that way. I don't want to be pegged as a fragile person. I've always seen myself as strong and independent and that's my identity or it has been my identity or it was my identity. Uh, I am more open to embracing the reality of the duality of life and that strength and fragility and weakness and independence can all exist at the same time, but it doesn't take away the anxiety.
My fear concern, and we'll address it perhaps in our next interview, is how will our collaboration on this project affect our relationship, our marriage? It may be hard to hear, but I'm telling her that my fear is what effect collaborating on this project may have on our marriage. It's bad enough we have two artists working together to try to make something come together. Now, add on to that, two artists who are married trying to do it. I know that we go toe-to-toe -to -toe about a lot of projects and ideas and just about everything actually but when it comes to invisible illness I don't feel like the rest of Tazu's answer to that question will be on the next installment of making a documentary that will tackle the topic of creative spouses working together Future episodes of the series will go into running a crowdfunding campaign and various episodes on the creative challenges that we're facing and eventually how we plan to handle distribution. Be sure to stay subscribed to the podcast so as not to miss a single episode. Oh, and in case you're wondering about the story I told at the top of the show, I was literally saved by the school bell before getting my ass kicked by Rufus. Someone up there must have been looking out for me. Be sure to stay after the credits for that special bonus segment. Also, are you or a loved one suffering from an invisible illness? That is, some sort of illness where you look totally fine on the outside, but are suffering on the inside. Examples would include something like chronic pain, diabetes, depression, Lyme disease, or PTSD. I invite you to read Tazza's story, watch the trailer, and join our growing email list. We really believe this film will be a source of hope and encouragement. In fact, just today, Taja shared a GoFundMe story posted by a 14-year-old boy whose dad was a wedding videographer in Marin County, California, who committed suicide this month on account of depression. This is something that affects lots of people in our industry, and I hope you'll join us on our journey. You can learn more at InvisibleIllnessFilm.com. Links are in the show notes. Radio Film School is a production of Dairy Dreamer FM and is a proud member of the Podcastica Network, a small collection of pop culture podcasts that cover topics from your favorite television shows to meditation and health to podcast production. This and other great shows can be found at podcastica.com. Music for this episode was curated from freemusicarchive.org. Links to tracks are in the show notes. If you like what we're doing on the show, please subscribe on iTunes. Your subscription helps get the show found. And while you're there, leave us a rating and review. Another terrific way you can support the show is by becoming a Daredreamer FM Premium Member. Premium membership helps keep this show going and putting out great weekly content. For a monthly price about the same as a large gourmet blended coffee, you not only support the show, but you get access to ebooks, templates, bonus episodes, discounts on other products and services, and other resources to help you grow in your crafting career. Go to daredreamer.fm slash join to learn more. You can follow me on Twitter at daredreameron, where I curate links and stories about filmmaking, photography, social media, marketing, and branding. If you just want to stay notified about what's up with the show, follow us at Radio Film School. If you like this episode, share it on Twitter or email it to a friend that you know needs to hear this message. That's it for this week, folks. Remember, if the story sucks, I don't care what you shot it with or cut it on.
Now, as promised, here's that bonus segment. And so I found this film and I started watching it. And so, like, here's the, this is the sequential, you know, I'm kind of jumping ahead because before this, um, my doctors had been telling me, you have anxiety, you're depressed, you have PTSD. And I kept saying, no, I'm not. I'm anxious because I can't do the things that I used to be able to do. I don't have anxiety. I'm anxious because my entire life has been changed. And, and I knew I had some anxieties like, you know, being afraid to get in a car and being able, afraid to cross the street and walk on a sidewalk, right? Like I got that. I believed them about that. But I didn't think I had an anxiety disorder. I just, I had a reaction to something that happened to me. So it felt different. And then they would say I was depressed and I would say, I'm not depressed. Like I know people who are depressed. I've lived with people who have depression that are clinically depressed. And, and it's a, it's not a circumstantial thing. It's not something that was you know, precipitated by specific things. And if you took those things away, that the depression would go away. To me, that's not a disorder. That's a circumstantial thing that if you can fix the circumstances, then you fix the issue. And so I was going to the doctors saying, I'm depressed because I am in pain 24-7 at a level eight or nine, you know, for the last year and a half. I mean, anybody who deals with that would be depressed because that means you don't get to live a normal life, that you're constantly depressed, that you, I mean, that you're constantly um, in pain and that you are stuck in bed and that you're not active, you're not able to do the things that you were able to do before. And then, you know, as a wife and a mother, I had all of these, you know, ideas about what that meant and what I needed to do and who I was and the productivity of who I needed to be. And so, not being able to do those things was really depressing. It wasn't that I was depressed in like in general. It was very specific to these things. If you could take away all of the physical things that were keeping me from doing the things I wanted to do and being who I saw myself as, then the depression would immediately go away. So, and then they kept saying I had PTSD and I come from a long line of military men from my brother, to my uncle, my dad, my grandfather, my great-grandfather. And I, I know what PTSD is from a military standpoint, from what they have seen, what they have experienced. And I would never have classified myself as having PTSD because in my own mind and in the minds of others, that if you are a civilian claiming PTSD and you haven't been through some major traumatic, life-changing, violent, you know, people dying, blood splattering kind of event that you are minimizing what PTSD is and what it means to the veterans who have lived through the trauma of war. And so I like vehemently denied that I had PTSD to the doctors who were trying to tell me I had it. I found the film about 12 to 18 months after the accident when my doctors had been talking to me about this. And I had not told 
hardly anyone that I had been hit by a car. So we told the people in our company that I had to stop doing photography, so we told our clients, but we didn't go into the specifics. I, I think I briefly mentioned some offhanded mark, remark on Facebook um, one time, but had not told anyone what I was going through. And so here I was watching this little film in my room, bedridden, and within the first eight minutes, I was sobbing. You're listening to Dare Dreamer FM, the sound of creative expression. Hmm? Ah! Oh. Oh.